did I not see this coming? Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we are wrapping up our little mini-series on the Word of Wisdom. Now, some people have asked, what does Word of Wisdom have to do with polygamy? In early Mormonism, all of these things are intertwined. They're all influencing each other. One of the reasons I started out talking about the Word of Wisdom was I was looking into this family, this plural family, of John Conrad Nagel. He's considered a founding pioneer Lots of stories about him. He actually uh, Americanized his name to Nail to get rid of the German. But um, he had several wives, and I started looking into their stories because I thought they might have an interesting story. And I actually want to highlight the wife specifically. So if anyone listening out there has information on these wives, more than just what I have, I'd be really interested in that. I'm looking for journals specifically if they kept a journal. I will just give you a basic rundown of them, but the reason why they're so so important to this project is they headed up the Dixie Wine Mission, as we talked about in the last two episodes. So if you haven't listened to the last two episodes on the history of the Word of Wisdom, you need to do that because it's going to give some background on why we're talking about this. What we do have are family histories about John Nagel, and there is a book published, and it's in the Dixie State Archives, about John Nagel. John Nagel was was of German descent. He was born in 1825 in Bavaria, Germany, and he came to America and settled in Indiana with his parents in 1832. His surname, like I said, was changed from Nagel to Nail, so it shows up in both. Uh, Nail spelled N-A-I-L-E, and some of his descendants don't realize that. So when they're talking about John Nail and Nagel, it's actually the same guy. What makes it even more confusing is he legally changes it back to Nagel in 1873. When he converts to the church, he moves to Nauvoo, and he would be in Nauvoo the last two years with the saints, 1844 to 46. So he was part of the whole exodus to winter quarters and then coming across to Utah. He was part of the Mormon battalion. And he also had a little bit of the gold fever. He went to California for a time to try to look for gold. But it's really the the part that I'm interested in in the Nagel family is when he was called to the Dixie Wine Mission in the 1860s. He built a large two-story home in Tokerville, which held his big plural family and the winery that they established. And they would call that the big house. The big house is a term that polygamists often use to mean the main house where all the wives might have been kept in this period of time. He would eventually, to escape, you know, the prosecution against polygamy, he would move to the colonies and spend the last two years of his life in colonial Oaxaca in Sonora, Mexico. And he died in 1899. But I want to talk about his wives, too, because it's their lives that I find particularly interesting. And we don't have a ton of information on them except for a few family sketches. So, again, I'm looking for journals or diaries. If anyone out there has those, I'm really interested in in getting my hands on them for a hot second. Between their family, they would have many children, and so a lot of people come through the Nagel line. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the wives, and then we're going to talk about the Dixie Wine Mission. So first we go with Mary Louisa Keppel, who was known as the first wife. 
She was born in Indiana, which is where she would have met John Nagel. I'm going to let her, we, we do have her own words of how she describes that meeting. Here is what she says, quote, I married John Conrad Nagel, June 15th, 1853 in Indiana. I started with my husband to California on June 1853, not knowing then that he was a Mormon. We arrived in the Great Salt Lake Valley on November 1st, 1853, and that same month I was baptized by Alfred Corden and confirmed by Bishop Tedegrew of the 10th Ward in Salt Lake City. I remained in Salt Lake City the first winter, for my husband, anxious about his farm and other interests, went to California in December 1853. He returned in April 1854, and in the same month we received our endowments and were sealed for time and eternity. My husband bought a large farm near Lehigh City, Utah, so in May 1854 we started by wagon for California with the intention to sell and return to Utah. However, we remained for two years in San Jose. There, my oldest daughter, Rachel, was born, end quote. They would come back from California in 1856 and come back to Lehigh, and John Nagel built one of the first large adobe houses. Louisa became sort of an innkeeper and a cook at the time. She would cook for everyone and keep them up. She was known as this beloved first wife by the other wives in the community. They would have three children, Rachel, Leah, and John Conrad. And then we're going to talk about uh, two sisters that he marries next. Because in 1856, these people are part of the Mormon Reformation. They would marry in the Mormon Reformation. So John and Louise and Mary Louisa come back during the Mormon Refor- Reformation. They moved to Lehigh in 1856. And this is where we have Brigham Young and Jedediah Grant giving these sermons about whipping the saints into shape. Now, if you haven't come back and listened to the episodes on the Mormon Reformation, you need to do that because this is when we have more plural marriages than anything else. And this is when people are married, two and three women to a man at a time. And John Nagel was one of those. He marries two sisters, Susan Zimmerman and Rosanna Zimmerman on the same day on July 6, 1857. And they were actually married by Brigham Young, which fits in line with this whole Mormon Reformation. Brigham Young starts charging money to perform these ceilings. He is doing these, you know, kind of in such an economical way that we're just going to marry all these women off at a time. It's funny because in the family history, they say, quote, as a token of appreciation for the wedding ceremonies, John C. Nagel gave President Young a $50 gold piece, end quote. Actually, this was a business, too, for Brigham Young, as we talked about in earlier episodes. We know that he started charging a fee to perform these ceilings, and yeah, he was making money. So unfortunately for Susan, even though... She is assigned in the family lore as a second wife, but these two women, these two sisters would have been sealed together at the same time. So they consider Susan the second wife, Rosanna the third wife. And as we've talked about, the second wife is really the hardest wife to be, right? You're the one that breaks the family into plural marriage. Most women I talk to now that live the principle, they acknowledge the second wife is the hard wife to be because you're the one that disrupts the monogamy, right? You're the one that is changing it into a plural family. So the third wife usually has it a little bit easier. But uh, Susan, she can't handle it. And after the birth of her third child, she leaves the family. And it seems to be a pretty platonic, amicable divorce because he gives her an equal share of what they owned. And she would go to school in Draper and get educated. And then she would teach school. And there she met and married William Terry on November 9th, 1870. So she tried living the principal for several years, had three children, but it was just too difficult. 
She was also very interested in the making of silk in Utah, and she was said to be a beautiful weaver that was very crafted and skilled in weaving really good patterns. She was more than just a, like an industrial weaver. She was an artist. But it seems she had a good relationship with her sister. But again, I would like to know more information. So if we can have journals or something, that would be fantastic. Her sister, Rosanna, both of them, you know, they come from Germany. They were also of German descent. These sisters would have lived in Nauvoo. They had early leanings in their church. Their parents were converted early on. And Rosanna has one of those sort of apocryphal pioneer stories where it's said that she was given a blessing by a Mormon patriarch. He promised that her family would always have bread. So she and her sisters one time were starving. They went in the fields to glean some grain and they made the straw into hats and were grinding the grain into flour. They found a way to magically have bread. Rosanna was part of the early Relief Society when she was a young woman and was an officer in the Relief Society for 20 years. When Eliza R. Snow organized the first primary in Lehigh, it was said that Carrie Ball was president and Rosanna was her first counselor for 10 years. And she was also a Sunday school teacher. So Rosanna really enjoyed teaching. She also cooked for weddings and banquets. She was a really, really good cook. She would bake two or three dozen pies for weddings, and she would make pies for the family. She was known for doing that. She also was a seamstress, and she would sew burial clothes for men. And it was said that she was ne- you know, she would never charge for those kind of things. She and her family would move to Beaver in 1862, and she would live there for two years and then come back up to Lehigh. She spent most of her time in Lehigh, then moved back down south to New Harmony in 1894, where she was chosen counselor to Elizabeth Mathis in the primary and was a teacher in the Relief Society. So she was a wife that wasn't living with the family all the time. She was on her own a lot, living with her children. And then there's Verena Briner, the fourth wife. She was also of Scandinavian descent. She was actually born in Switzerland. She had a blind brother whose name was Hans Ulrich Briner Jr., and he was the first member of the family to be baptized. They immigrated to Utah in 1855, and Verena was taking care of her aging parents and her blind brother. They would come and settle in Utah when they arrived in Utah, and she would marry John Nagel on January 19, 1860, just at the tail end of the Mormon Reformation. They would have a son, Alma, born the very same year, and a little girl born later on, who died very young, and, and so Verena would understand what it is to lose children. They went to Concho, Arizona in 1880 to take charge of a home that John Nagel was establishing there. It was a little two-room adobe house located on the Concho Creek, about one half mile northwest of Concho Spring. And we've interviewed Moroni Jessup, who is an independent fundamentalist who is still living in Concho today. So that's a little Mormon enclave in Concho, Arizona. And then there's Regula Bentz, the fifth wife. She was also born in Switzerland. They were converted in Switzerland in 1854, and then they immigrated the next year. She would marry John Nagel in 1860 in October. So he married in January, and then he marries Regula in 1860. She would live in the big house in Lehigh, and she would work in the kitchen, in the garden, and on the loom since weaving became a thing in their family. She would go with Verena and John Nagel in 1866 to Tokerville and lived in the same house there. And she would take turns with the other wives who would come to Tokerville later, spending summers in the Buckskin Mountains making cheese and butter for the family in Tokerville or in Tokerville, in Tokerville drying and preserving fruit. So this really sums up what a plural family is like. 
everybody's doing their part. No matter where they're at, they're always focusing on the family. And this is how early Mormons would have connected across the plains with very little communication. You go somewhere very remote and the way that you live as a family is you work for your family while they're gone. You're making cheese for them as an effort, almost in lieu of communication. This is how you stayed connected to your family was by working for them. Regula really worked hard at becoming a midwife. And so she really studied that sort of was self-taught. And she was, you know, she was really industrious. It said that she had a well-stocked kitchen, that she made herbs and medicines from the, the plants that were around her. And she did a lot of midwifery in Tokerville for many, many years. She was also vice president in the Relief Society most of the time she was in Tokerville. And she spent the last 20 years of her life working in the St. George Temple. And they would do a lot, you know, the apocryphal story with her is they did a lot of German and Swiss names in the temple. Then we have Pauline Beck, who's the sixth wife. She was born in Germany in 1846. She would meet John Nagel when he was 39 and had five wives, all living in the big house. On April 18, 1865, John Conrad Nagel and Pauline Beck married in the endowment house in Salt Lake City, and the ceremony was performed by Heber Kimball. When they got back to their home in Lehigh, all the wives had prepared a wedding feast, and the newlyweds sat down with the guests, and the wives waited on the table. In Lehigh, I guess in the big house, each wife had a bedroom in the big house, and the kitchen and dining room belonged to the family, and the parlor belonged to John Nagel. He had his own time. The women would each take turns in the kitchen a week at a time, and sometimes they would trade work for the things that they loved. So Aunt Pauline loved to cook, and Aunt Rosanna, who was a seamstress, loved to sew, so they would often trade their work. It said that Aunt Louisa, the first wife that we talked about, took the lead and told everyone she was like the one that did the assignments. Something is interesting in Pioneer accounts is that Fast Sunday that we have now as LDS people, we have one Sunday a month where we fast. I've actually heard of a few fundamentals groups that do it this old way where it's the first Thursday of every month and that's where you do your fast meeting is on Thursday. And there's an account here, if you're ever looking to talk about the history of Fast Sunday, where Pauline observes Fast Thursday and they would have a 10 a.m. fast meeting with the Relief Society. So it's kind of a fun side note. And then his last wife was Roselia Ann Zaylor. She was uh, a Swiss girl too, born uh, February 15th, 1857. So the year that she is born, Nagel, that's the year that John Nagel is marrying two of his wives in the Mormon Reformation. She would come over as a teenager to Utah and arrive in 1876. And she would, her and her sister w- left, uh, lived in the Nagel home and helped as house help. Louisa Nagel met them in Salt Lake City and took them to her home in Lehigh. But it's said that the two girls, the two sisters, went out behind the little lumber shack that evening and were so distraught. And they said, so this is Zion. You know, they had left their beautiful green Switzerland and came to this dry, dusty frontier in Lehigh and, you know, felt really sorry about it. Yeah, it's it was hard for them, but they there's an account in their family history that says that the next morning after they had a good cry, they were awakened by barking dogs and the crowing roosters, which sounded the same as the old country. So they felt a little bit better. Roselia had met John Conrad when he was on a mission to Switzerland. So that's actually how they met. So he came to visit his family when he got off of his mission and he decides to bring Roselia with him. That's how they ended up together. She would marry John Nagel in 
1877, and it was the first week of the opening of the St. George Temple. When John Nagel moves down to the colonies, Rosalia would go with him. So she headed to the colonies with him. And then when he was dying, the other wives would come join. And we have a little bit of words from her life. She said, quote, I served in the Relief Society in the various communities where I lived. I did my part in pioneering with my husband, a man loved and respected by all who knew him for his sterling character and generosity. I contributed my share in a large family who lived the principle of plural marriage very successfully. I have had many thrilling experiences and testimonies and much happiness while living in Utah and pioneering in two colonies in old Mexico, end quote. So that's the family that I first got interested in. And now I want to talk a little bit about the Dixie Wine Mission. There's this uh, great dissertation, and I'm going to link to it, by Dennis Lancaster in 1972. And he, he chose to write his dissertation on the wine mission, which was pretty, you know, for BYU. And it's pretty controversial to talk about wine in 1972 at BYU, but he has this great, this great dissertation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. He opens a dissertation with a story of something that I think that everyone needs to know. So that we talked about the St. George Temple, right? Where John Nagel has his last plural marriage. On April 1874, Brigham Young and Erastus Snow dedicate the southeast corner of the temple. And they dedicated a box encased in stone and containing records, coins, newspapers, a silver plate, and a bottle of Dixie wine. So when they dedicated the temple, the St. George Temple, this is a fun fact, they dedicated it with a bottle of Dixie wine. This is what got Lancaster interested in doing this topic because he says wine placed in the corner of a Mormon te- cornerstone of a Mormon temple, this deserved more than a second glance and ultimately became the subject of this thesis. So this, I love this idea of there's in the cornerstone of the St. George Temple is a bottle of this Dixie wine. So let's talk about Utah Dixie first. So that's the southwest corner of the state. And right now we would know it as Washington County. So I go down there a lot when I'm helping folks from the FLDS. We call it the Crick, Short Crick, which is Colorado City, Arizona and Hildale, Utah. Hildale, Utah is in Washington County. Also St. George, Tokerville, all of those little southern Utah towns. The Dixie Wine Mission was mostly from Santa Clara, a few miles south of St. George, to Tokerville, which was 20 or so miles north of St. George. One of the things that you need to know about it is there's the Virgin River in Dixie, which sort of weaves through these beautiful red-colored hills. If you haven't been to Southern Utah, that is the Utah experience. You have to go down to Dixie. You have to go down to Southern Utah. Before the Mormons get there, the area was already explored by Escalante and Dominguez. They came through the Virgin Valley in July of 1776. According to Lancaster's thesis, after that 50 years would take place before another white man would come through the territory, it was Jedediah Smith who was headed en route to California. It said that in honor of the President of the United States, John Quincy Adams, he gave the name Adams River to the river that Escalante had called the Sulphur River. One of his men, Thomas Virgin, was killed by Indians there, and so they think that this might be why the river was given its present name, the Virgin River, named for Thomas Virgin. When John C. Fremont came in through in 1844, he made careful notes and mapped the valley. Of course, Fremont's expedition absolutely impacted the Mormons. When Brigham Young comes in 1847, he would send Jefferson Hunt, who was the main leader of the Mormon Battalion, the famous leader, with 16 men 
to California over the Spanish Trail. And the purpose of this was to get seeds for planting, establish a trade route, and scout out the country. So this group of Mormons would travel through this area and return from their trip in California in 1848. So this establishes a route for the Mormons. So Henry Boyle would lead a group from the Mormon battalion from California up to the Spanish Trail in the spring of 1848. And it's said that this was the group that used the first known wheeled vehicles to traverse the Spanish Trail. So not just horses or walking, but they used wagons. So it was became this clearly marked Spanish trail. And now Brigham Young is governor of the territory, and he sends Parley P. Pratt with 50 men south in 1849 to seek out sites for future towns. It's there on this trip that Pratt discovers iron ore deposits located around Cedar City, which leads to the colonization of Parowan in Cedar City. Here's what Elder Pratt describes about the area. He says, quote, A wide expanse of chaotic matter presented itself, huge hills, sandy deserts, cheerless, grassless plains, perpendicular rocks, loose, barren clay, dissolving beds of limestone, lying inconceivable confusion, end quote. What they did discover is that some of the, the soil there was really good for farming. It was really fertile. So this gets Brigham Young interested because he's really trying to make Utah self-sufficient, not rely on outsiders. So in General Conference of 1851, John D. Lee was said to be called to set, you know, form a settlement at the junction of the Rio River and the Santa Clara Creek. The idea was they were going to raise grapes, cotton, figs, raisins, and anything else that they could grow down there. In 1852, acting from the direction of Brigham Young, John D. Lee goes and explores this area. Here is what Lee reported in his findings, quote, The soil is a lively alluvial nature and of dark chocolate color and easily irrigated. Banks on the stream low. The climate is of mild temperature. He said the grapevines and cottonwoods are almost out. There we can raise cotton, flax, hemp, grapes, figs sweet potatoes, fruit of almost every kind, end quote. But instead of establishing a settlement on the Rio Virgin, as Brigham Young had told him to, he settles in Harmony in 1852, 40 miles south of it. They become so excited about producing all of these like exotic fruits that they petition the territorial legislature to send a company of 150 men to start cotton plantations and vineyards. The legislature legislature denies a petition because of lack of funds. And there were a lot of Indian conflicts at the time. Indians and settlers were sort of fighting over this land that the Native Americans had been inhabiting for centuries. This idea to go in and raise wine and cotton leads Brigham Young to realize that he has to deal with the Indians. They have to make peace with the indigenous tribes that are living there. So this is where he sends Jacob Hamblin, Ira Hatch, Amos Thornton, A.P. Hardy, Thales Haskell, and Samuel Knight to go set down uh, mission headquarters and start this Indian mission. And if you actually want to read about this, Jacob Hamlin's biography of Frontier Life by Todd Compton, who also did the biographical sketches on the wives of Joseph Smith. It's really great. I'm going to link to it. Frontier uh, Life is talks all about the Paiutes, uh, Jacob Hamlin's interaction there, and it's actually pretty illuminating. It's said that on this Indian mission, Jacob Hamlin becomes really sick. A woman, a nurse from Parowan, gives him a jar of cotton seeds 
and says, you guys should experiment raising this. And so they plant it down there and it grows like crazy. And so they get really excited and they have their first crop of cotton and they send it to Brigham Young. The cotton crop of 1856 was large enough to justify building a cotton gin. So a lot of the wives of Santa Clara, their whole enterprise in 1856 was spinning and weaving 30 yards of cloth from this cotton to show to Brigham Young. Brigham Young gets excited about this idea and really wants, you know, they call it the cotton mission. And this is part of why they call it Dixie. They saw it replacing the United States South, right, where they're producing cotton because of slavery. Brigham Young says, we don't need that. We're going to have our own Dixie and we're going to produce cotton here. By 1860, there are about 79 families in Washington County total. So it was a very small, sparse place, but people were trying to survive there and trying to grow these crops. Brigham Young decides to check it out for himself. So in 1861, he goes down and they do this inspection tour of Santa Clara and other parts of southern Utah. Brigham Young expressed his hopes in the area. He said this, quote, The settlements south of the rim of the basin are yet small, but it is expected they will rapidly strengthen and in- increase as the demand for cotton increases under increased facilities for its manufacture. They also furnish a large amount of fruit to the settlements north of them in exchange for wheat, etc. Also wine, olive oil, castor oil, indigo, molasses, and sugar, a trade so mutually beneficial that we trust soon to see it expand more common surely, I think he meant commercially, with the wants of the people, end quote. When Brigham Young toured the area in 1859, he sort of made a prophecy where he says, there will yet be built between these volcanic ridges a city with spires, towers, and steeples, with homes containing many inhabitants. And he would fulfill his own prophecy by sending people down there. At the General Conference in Salt Lake City in 1861, 309 family heads were called to found St. George and to reinforce the settlement to establish in Dixie. All the families had to have some experience growing cotton or semi-tropical crops. Erastus Snow and Orson Pratt were called to preside over the cotton mission. And Orson Pratt didn't last long there, so Erastus Snow would stay as the leader of the cotton mission until his death in 1888. Most people with this call, it would have been an exciting time. 309 families is no small thing. But remember, they had been carving out a living in Salt Lake City, which was already really, really rugged. This, according to Lancaster, was a huge trial to most of these saints. He mentions that the Charles L. Walker diary records common response for the call to colonize Dixie. Here's a diary entry from Walker in 1862. He says, quote, Well, here I've worked for the last seven years through heat and cold hunger and adverse circumstances and at last have got me a home lot with fruit trees just beginning to bear and look pretty well i must leave it and go and do the will of my father in heaven who overrules all for the good of them that love and fear him and i pray god to give me strength to accomplish that which is required of me in an acceptable manner before him end quote on the day he departs for dixie he writes quote this was the hardest trial i have ever had And had it not been for the gospel and those that were placed over me, I should have never moved a foot to go on such a trip. But then I came here not to do my own will, but the will of those that are over me. I know it will all be right if I do right. End quote. In April of 1861 at General Conference, Brigham Young would give a sermon about the economic aspects of breaking the word of wisdom, which we talked about. There were no specific instructions about wine at all, but he did speak of tobacco. He said, quote, if we use it, 
let us raise it here. We annually expend only $60,000 to break the word of wisdom, but we can save the money and still break it if we break it. End quote. So he was saying, if we're going to smoke tobacco, let's grow it. And now he's getting excited with the idea that if it is truly like the South in the United States, well, then maybe they can grow tobacco too. A few of the names that of the families that went there were George Badley of the Salt Lake City 10th Ward, who was a distiller. So they were running, we talked about the 10th Ward running the distillery in Salt Lake. So he went down there. Jacob Graff of Tooele, who was a winemaker. Edward Huber of Lehigh, who was a blacksmith and a vine dresser. Here's what Charles Walker says when he enters the valley in 1862, quote, St. George is a barren looking place. The soil is red and sandy on the north ranges and a long, high and rocky bluff. On the east is a long black ridge of volcanic production. On the west, the same on the south runs a virgin river, a shallow rapid stream from which a great portion of the land is irrigated. To look on the country, it, it dry, parched, barren waste with here and there a green spot at the margin of the streams. Very windy, dusty, blowing all over the time. The water is not good and far from being palatable. And this is the country we have to live in and make it blossom as the rose. Well, it's all right. We shall know how to appreciate a good country when we get to it. End quote. I think that this would have been on par with a, a lot of people's feelings. Like we said, we have the, those accounts of those two girls from Switzerland coming over and crying because... They're in this barren, barren place. This is how a lot of the saints would feel, but doubly so after carving out the land in Salt Lake City and then having to come down here. There would be a Swiss colony in Dixie, um, which was the, the headquarters of the wine mission. There were about 30 Swiss families called by Daniel Bonelli in the 1861 call. Families like the Hafen family would come from wine producing areas in Switzerland and knew how to make good wine. The converts were being funded by the Perpetual Immigration Fund, so they were happy to be transported down there in volunteer wagons because a lot of their things were being funded and paid for. Here's what one of those elders that was sent there wrote, John S. Stuckey. He was a Swiss handcart pioneer of the 1860s. He wrote, quote, The main objective of President Brigham Young in sending our people to Dixie was to raise cotton for the people to make clothing from. We were also to raise wine to be used for the sacrament of this people, although water was to be used until this people could have wine of their own making, which was to be pure wine of the vine. I had the chance to furnish the first wine for the Holy Sacrament in Santa Clara, which was a great pleasure for me to have the right to do, end quote. Another group that was sent were the Coopers. These were the people who made the barrels for the wine, and this was a very important job, too. They would make pine barrels, but if you did it wrong, then they would spoil the wine. So oak was considered something that they wanted, but they didn't have a lot of oak, and they didn't have a lot of bottles. So they had to send these Coopers down there, 10 of them, to manufacture barrel containers for the molasses and wine. It's said that Edwin R. Lamb and his brother Brigham Lamb were the expert coopers. They also had horticulturists and gardening clubs that were starting to get organized. Walter E. Dodge was called the father of the grape in southern Utah. He moved to Santa Clara in 1857 and left to California during the Utah War. He would bring back from California lots of California fruit trees and vines. And he would return again to get even more cuttings in California and plant them in St. George in a place known as Dodge Springs, which is famous for its shrubs, flowers, vines, and trees. In 1865, Luther S. Hemingway was called by Brigham Young to go to St. George, and the purpose of this was to experiment in the grape culture and making of different wines. He was a skilled horticulturist, 
And he already brought with him seeds and plants. So he goes to the Dixie Nursery and sets up what he can on a 10-acre tract of land in St. George to print his vineyards. Here's what the Desert News says on January 18, 1869, quote, In this wild, broken desert land where once volcanoes and earthquakes reigned supreme till its whole face was marked by their terrible violence, the grape has found a home, as congenial, I presume, as it enjoys in Syria or Persia. It is better adapted to our soil than any other plant we cultivate. We have been very diligent in procuring the choicest varieties we could obtain or have any knowledge of and contemplate that in a few years hence, we shall enjoy as good wine as any people on the earth, end quote. They sent people to study soil. They sent, I mean, this was a big deal. This is a big venture. And they became very proud of this idea. In 1869, there were 100 acres of land that were surveyed for, to make the Gardener's Club which was an expansion of vineyards where this club would encourage members of the community to turn it into a co-op where they would all work on this vineyard. Here's what Joseph E. Johnson said, who he was sent to survey the soil, quote, For the past four years, through the agency of our Fruit Growing Association and through private enterprises, we have imported and otherwise accumulated a great variety of the finest foreign grapes, of which we may safely say we have in that line the cream of the civilized world. In our own collection, we can enumerate over a hundred varieties. We have taken this course, not that we have, not that we expect to propagate for this locality so great a variety, but consider it wise to prove it in our soil and climate, the value of all varieties that are considered excellent elsewhere, and thus be able to select for propagation for vineyards the very best for wine. In fact, the very best known for any and every use. We shall doubtless be able to select, including what we have to fruit the next two years, all that we shall desire of known varieties and shall be able to furnish vineyardists and amateurs in the Rocky Mountains any varieties worth their attention. Grape growing must be a sort of specialty here, so we have taken time by the forelock and as early as possible have imported the cream la cream of the world's vineyards and hothouses, end quote. It became a culture. They were printing journals now at this point. They were They had this gardening club. They were all sharing in the society of winemaking. According to Johnson's papers, they would have, they would bring in specimens. They would try it. They would do wine testing. They would talk about the different grapes and the different soils. And it was said to be really, you know, an intellectual enterprise. But the man who's known to be the best winemaker in Dixie is John Nagel, who we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. His product was marketed under Uh, the name of Nails Best. And his family was called to build up this culture in 1866. He would go to Tokerville, build a large two-story stone house for his giant polygamous family. And in the basement of this house, which still stands today, and I'm going to link to some photos of it, was a huge wine cellar, large enough to drive into with a span of horses and wagon to turn around in it. He purchased a wine press and distillery from California, and that was part of one of his trips to California. And he became known as the best wine producer in the territory. He was assisted by his half-brother, Conrad Kleinman, who was 10 years older and had learned the winery business in Germany. According to Heber Nagel, John Nagel's son, Brigham Young wanted them to make the best quality wine, and then that was to be shipped to Salt Lake to a depot, and Brigham Young was going to find a market for it. But before Brigham Young could you know, have these plans, Brigham Young died. It's said that Nagel produced as much as 3,000 gallons of wine a year in Tokerville, which found markets all over the place in mining camps in Nevada and Utah and amongst the colonists in Dixie. 
His big cellar, according to Lancaster, contained several 500-gallon barrels where they would hold the famous wine. One of the reasons that wine was so popular is the saints soon realized it was a really good cash crop. So they began making that to fund the cotton mission. In the words of Joseph E. Johnson, he said, quote, The most safe and profitable use of large crops of grapes is to manufacture into wine, as the crop requires less labor and less care and transportation than either of these conditions. Fine choice wines are always worth from 3 to $4 per gallon in New York. Many of our small vineyards may be made to produce wines that will compare with the rarest importations and become a source of wealth to the country, end quote. And this is true. There are stories of um, pioneers that went and tried to sell grapes to people. No one wanted grapes. They wanted wine. And so they found that if they were starving in Utah, the best way to get out of poverty was to grow wine. It became very popular. George A. Smith, who was over the area, spoke in General Conference on October 7th, 1865, said, of St. George, quote, many vineyards have come into bearing and extensive new vineyards have been planted. This shows that many saints are making the wine down south. It's seen as something that is helping save the saints. They, it's a big enterprise. According to Lancaster, figures compiled and published by order of territorial Le legislative assembly showing the material condition of the territory in 1875 advised that there were 544 acres of grape yielding, a total of 3,409,200 pounds of average yield with 6,260 bushels per acre. These are territorial figures and do not give county-by-county county statistics, but Washington County had raised 3 million pounds of grape in the average yield per year. One of the Utah pomologists said that one acre of vineyard will require from 10 to 1,500 plants, and it would take about three years to produce really good grapes to give 25 pounds of fruit to the vine. And in the fourth year, they should average over a gallon of wine to the plant. So what that means is in four years following planting, a farmer could expect from 10 to 1,500 gallons of wine. It's said on a vineyard it's supposed to increase year after year. What's really cool is if you're interested in this, in this dissertation, Lancaster describes the entire winemaking process, how they made the wine. And he has entries like Levi Savage's journal entries to show the process step by step. So if you want to make your own Dixie wine, you can look up Lancaster's dissertation and see how the early Mormon saints did it. There's this great account from Josephine Hamblin, who remembers seeing her grandfather, George Jarvis standing waist deep in a vat of fermenting grapes. One of the things Lancaster points out is it was said that Dixie girls had the widest legs in the territory because they had been tromping grapes. Josephine remembers that her grandfather, quote, used to make us children wash our feet and clean our toenails to get in the vat and tromp the wine. It became a communal thing like winemaking often is. Bob Nagel of Tokerville um, said that the old men would get in the tub and get in there with their feet and tromp the grapes. Although tromping the grapes was part of the wine process, most of it was processed through more conventional ways. Early children were involved. Um, early pioneer children remember how, quote, us kids used to squeeze grapes with our hands and put the juice in the jars to ferment. We used to want to get a hold of a five-gallon wooden bucket to make wine in. We would always steal our grapes. So it seems that there was like like anything else in these communities where it's a co-op. You have children making them with their dirty little hands, stomping out with their feet, and then using wine presses as well. 
And fun fact, much of the Dixie wine was made with the Isabella grape along the Virgin River. It's the Isabella grapefruits are really good, hearty, sturdy grapes, but they really grew in this climate and it was recommended for the cultivation of their wine. Here's what the Deseret Evening News reported in 1868, quote, W.E. Dodge has wine made of the Isabella grape, which is pronounced a superior article by competent judges, and from the common mission grape was a wine made at Tokerville last season, which in alcoholic strength and saccharine properties surpassed the best Burgundy ever analyzed and lacked nothing but aroma of perfect, of being perfect wine, end quote. So here, you know, we have the Desert News talking about this wine being produced, and they really enjoyed the culture of it. So while wine was being made for commercial practices to sell to Gentiles to, you know, provide money for the cotton mission and for sacraments. It was also a huge social aspect of the Dixie area. Most people in Dixie area drink wine socially, or as someone commented, quote, partner everybody drink wine. Of course they did. That uh, it wasn't considered a sin. It was part of their social behavior. The historian Lancaster says it was a common drink, somewhat like Pepsi or Coke today, which is I hope not, because if they're drinking as much wine as I am Diet Coke, then that means you're an alcoholic. Uh, the wealthy would have as much as three pitchers on their dinner table. Uh, one that had water, one had milk, and the other had wine. It was just what they did. It was always in the basement when visitors came to call. When Brigham Young passed through Tokerville, he would stop at Nagel's home, and Nagel would break out the wine, the best wine for the dignitary. And same thing with all the Mormon leaders. They would drive through the big house, and they would get the best wine in Dixie. They would take wine with them to the field instead of drinking water, and they would. That's where they would take their lunch. They would go drink the wine in the shade. There's there's uh, accounts of them drinking wine in their diary. They just didn't see it as a sin. It was definitely considered something as a holiday um, for Christmas, July fourth, July twenty fourth, weddings and weekend dances. And I love this idea of pioneers celebrating their own pioneer day with their wine. It's definitely not something that is known in Utah now, unless you're an ex-Mormon and you have your pie and beer day, but they actually drank Dixie wine. That was part of it. Speaking of Christmas wine, Joseph Graff, um, who was a Dixie pioneer, said, quote, in the early days, they had a fine small brass band in Santa Clara. On Christmas, the band would start early in the mornings and serenade the people. One Christmas morning, Edward Free and I decided to go with them. Every place they stopped at, the people would bring out a lot of pie, cake, and wine. Edward Free and I got a 10-gallon keg and poured out what wine we could get into the keg at each place. By the time we got through, we had a full keg of wine. We had all we could drink and had a good time. I felt so good that I fell into a ditch of water on my home, end quote. Charles Walker, who had talked about coming here, and it was a, you know, a trial for him. So he went to a solemn assembly in the tabernacle in dis- on, dis- on Christmas in the 1870s, and he wrote, quote, Toward the close, refreshments and wine were passed around the congregation. Altogether, it was the happiest Christmas I ever passed, end quote. Now, the 4th and 24th were like the, the most famous uh, sacred holidays for the saints, and these holidays would have bands and races and games and patriotic assemblies and lots of toasts, lots of wine toasts. Levi Savage reported on July 24, 1888, quote, a few of the boys having drank too much wine ran their horses and wagons through the street at a fearful rate. Eventually, two of the wagons collided and ruined a forward wheel of one. Fortunately there, no one was hurt, end quote. 
wine also showed up at the dances. Dances were a very important activity for early pioneers, especially in the Cotton Mission. They would gather in the large homes of John D. Lee or Robert D. Covington or in the public spaces. And they would do quadrilles and polkas and shottishes. And wine was almost always available at those events. It sometimes would spark big outbreaks of what Lancaster calls rowdyism. And the musicians were paid in wine sometimes to come to these events to play. They were paid in wine. Wine was a huge part of weddings, like we talked about in honeymoons. John D. Lee gave a huge wedding party for his daughter where 200 people came and he served wine of his own raising. Will Brooks said of his wedding to Nellie Stevens in 1911, quote, Our honeymoon trip was really one to remember. I bought a five-gallon keg of wine to take along, for I knew the boys of Moab. At Moab, the boys gathered around, bent up upon mischief, but I poured out a big pitcher of wine for them. After a couple of drinks around, they went off satisfied and happy. I had plenty left in the keg to make all necessary treats in Monticello. Weddings and honeymoons were when these people would have it, but they also used it as part of medicine. In fact, it was used all over the valley, all over Utah for medicine. They used it to treat measles. They used it to treat other ailments, to help with exhaustion. When their bodies were achy with a cold or the flu, it would calm their aches. John D. Lee even claims that it saved his life from freezing to death one night. He drank it and it kept him warm. This Dixie wine would have been used all the way up until the 1940s. There's accounts in the dissertation in like the 1930s of using it for medicine. It was absolutely considered medicinal. So it had all of those purposes. It was used socially. It was used medically. It was used for, you know, economically as a cash crop. Peddling was an important aspect of the Dixie wine economy. They would peddle dried fruits and wine into Iron Beaver and Sevier County in exchange for other things that they needed like flour and and cheese and things like that. So it was an important trade for them too. There's this great chapter in the dissertation about folklore and stories. Lancaster quotes Olive W. Burt in her article entitled Winemaking Utah's Dixie in Lore and Faith and Folly, where it says that her mother had a number of firm beliefs about wine. Quote, no pregnant woman should be permitted to assist in the winemaking or her baby would be a drunkard. A wine glass should never be turned upside down because it would bring bad luck. There were some also some proverbs like spill your wine before one swallow and bad luck will surely follow. This bad luck could be adverted by dipping the middle finger on the right hand into the spilled wine and rubbing it on your ear. They also would say, know the vintner, know the wine. So you would know who the winemaker was by the wine that they made. These are sort of the, some of the stories that are passed down from generation. And I love it because it reminds me of the own, you know, the superstitions I heard from my own grandparents. And it comes from these things. Like if you are a pregnant woman and you make wine, then your kid's going to be a drunkard. Church leaders didn't seem too concerned with the fact that they drank wine, just that they would get drunk or be rowdy. William B. Ashworth said, quote, at the Sunday meetings, the bishops would inquire if there were anyone present who had ever overindulged during the week and wished to confess before partaking of the sacrament. They would have the privilege of doing so. Usually some of the elder brethren's consciences would smite them and they would arise and confess to indulging a little too strongly. They were passed on and each time forgiven, end quote. There's also the story by Thales Haskell, which is told by Angus Cannon, in which his grandfather asked Brigham Young if it was not wrong for an elder to assist in the laying on of hands for the healing of the sick with the odor of wine under his breath. It's said, this is according to Angus's, 
Ingus Cannon's account. Brother Young asked Brother Cannon, do you know of any such circumstance? To which Brother Cannon said he recently asked Brother Haskell to assist him, and he was sure he detected a strong aroma of wine on his breath. To this, President Young replied, Brother Cannon, do you know I would rather be administered upon by Brother Haskell drunk than by many of our elders sober? End quote. I love that. There's also this great story passed down from, you know, family to family that there was a wedding in Tokerville and they couldn't, something was wrong with the spigots with the wine. And so they just poured them out into a tub. The next morning, the couple sets to leave on their honeymoon and they get on the horses, but something are wrong. The horses are weaving in and out. They don't have proper decorum. Their eyes were sparkly and they were acting strange. And they realized that the boy who tended the horses had watered those two from the very same tub that held the wine the night before. So they said that the horses got drunk. There's also a story, and I'm going to quote, I'm just going to read Lancaster what he writes, quote, The story is told of two Tokerites who were guests at a Relief Society social. The sisters had been asked to bring different kinds of fruit juices to be mixed together for the refreshment. The two brethren brought their own forms of juice, and during the party succeeded in spiking the punch with a gallon of sweet Dixie wine. It is said that the sisters would come over and pour themselves a glass, comment on how good it was, and by the end of the evening, we're all feeling pretty happy, end quote. So they're spiking the wine at the Relief Society social in Tokerville. It's also said that there was a German man that had a little home in the town of Middleton between Washington and St. George, and that when Brigham Young would pass through, he would stop in for a glass of wine, quote, just one glass of wine. That's all he would drink, and he always wanted a sandwich to go along with it. He would sit there and sip that wine just like a cup of tea. So that's Brigham Young sipping his wine like a cup of tea. This dissertation is really great. You've got to read it if you want to know about more about it. There's some really, really fun stories here, um, especially the folklore. I love hearing these stories passed down about, you know, the little kids getting into trouble, going and blowing bubbles in the jugs and in the wine and causing trouble, people spiking things, lots of getting drunk. There, this is a song called Sweet Dixie Wine, and it came out of the early Dixie settlement. It said, Billy Lang, we all knew, and William Hall, too, both were makers of very sweet wine. They said to pay up or they'd take our pup to pay for their sweet Dixie wine, to pay for their sweet Dixie wine. Alex Fullerton next, we paid our respects. Respect for his Isabella wine. He gave each a cup and told us to sup, to sup on his Isabella wine, to sup on his Isabella wine. Then over to Leeds, we'd hasten our steeds. The road were so dusty but fine. Brother Sterling we found and knew he was sure bound to serve us his Malaga wine. To serve us his Malaga wine. Then on to Bellevue, Brother Gregerson too, a maker of very sweet wine. We tarried too long. The wine was too strong. We got drunk on his sweet Dixie wine. We got drunk on his sweet Dixie wine. Now on to Springdale, we followed the trail, the trail of the sweet Dixie wine. Bill Duffin was there and he said, beware, beware of his sweet Dixie wine. Beware of his sweet Dixie wine. Then on to Northrop, we traded our pup. Oh, how the poor devil did wine. Sister Hamblin was unable to remember the name of this verse. This comes from the Hamblin family. Then on to Pioch with a broken down coach and a harness all mended with twine. Jake Johnson was there and he said, beware, beware of their whiskey so strong. Beware of their whiskey so strong. Next morning we woke a bunch of old soaks and found that we were all broke. We vowed never again, oh never again, to drink of Jake's whiskey so strong. Then homeward we're bound, a great lesson we found. We vowed never again, oh never again, to leave our home, the home of our sweet Dixie wine. This uh, comes from Josephine Hamblin, who has all these stories of making wine. And this is a great song known as Sweet Dixie Wine. 
There are several other songs in the dissertation, which are definitely worth checking out. Brigham Young did have his concerns, though. John D. Lee said that Brigham Young said, quote, the man of experience who will get drunk, let him be severed from the church. And the man who sells wine or ardent spirits to another to drink, let him be cut off from this church. Brigham Young felt that, quote, wine should be an article of export and not drunk among the saints, except in taking sacraments. So Young was trying to get it under control, even though he partook. I think he saw him as a man in control. He didn't like the men who didn't have control over the drink. Brigham Young said, quote, I have no doubt were we to offer the wine in sacrament that some would swallow a pint if the tumbler would, would hold that much before they could bite it off, end quote. The church leaders really saw the wine not only used for sacrament, but anything extra should be exported. But of course, it didn't end up that way. And I think it probably caused more problems than the early church leaders expected. James G. Bleak wrote, quote, deprecated the tem- tendency of many of the people of this southern country to indulge too freely in the wine and other intoxicating drinks, advised to temperance and wisdom in the use of these articles, said that those things among us are ruinous to our welfare and opposed to the building up of this kingdom, and this is an evil which is far worse and more calculated to destroy us than all the opposition of the world arrayed against us, end quote. So when we talked about the word of wisdom last time in the last episode, we talk about some of the ways that it has transitioned and why the church moved away from it. But it's important to know that wine itself isn't inherently bad. You know, I was taught that growing up LDS, it's almost culturally like drinking is worse than like murder. (laughs) For some of us culturally, we were that scared of it. But really, it's not inherently bad. I think Brigham Young and other leaders just saw it as a money-making venture, but it kind of got out of control. You know, they were also raising cash crops and alcoholics down in Southern Utah. And so temperance was something that they tried. And when temperance wasn't working, it just became abstinence. So I'm going to link to this and you can, there are so many jewels in this dissertation to glean from, but the Nagel family, what, you know, you can go down and still see their winery in Tokerville. I think in the 1970s, it was restored and you can go see it. It still exists today. But yeah, the Dixie Wine Mission was a huge part of building up the kingdom of God. Wine saved saints in Southern Utah and the cash crops that it brought really helped. Uh, Wine was paid in tithing, as we mentioned before. Grapes were paid in tithing and definitely the money of the early church, including some of the funding of the St. George Temple was, you know, alcohol, wine. So um, all of that is in the dissertation. So it's just kind of a fun thing to talk about. And again, why is this, what does this have to do with polygamy? Well, the winemaking was a communal process. Polygamy is a communal process. All of these wives of John C. Nagel were part of this. They founded Utah. John C. Nagel was known for it, but really his wives were part of this process. Their children were part of it. It's all part of this communal sort of united order living. And that is the early history of winemaking. It's said that it's in the cornerstone of the St. George Temple. So that's just a little bit on the history of the Dixie Wine Mission. And we have some fun, good stuff coming up in the next few episodes. So stay tuned. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. 
Thanks for listening.